0: Here's just a challenge for your listeners. Uh, Think about something that would be difficult for you to do and do it. How come? Because it's going to be difficult for you to do. And in the process of doing that, you're going to learn a lot about yourself if you're paying attention. Uh, But what if you fail? Oh, that's wonderful. Because then you will see that it's possible to fail and bounce back from failing. And oh, by the way, Here's some advice for you. I can tell you a surefire way never, ever to fail again in life, and that is don't ever do something difficult. Just get on that couch, relax, have some chips, right? Uh, Watch some television, and you will never have to experience failure, and you'll also never grow as a human being. You'll never flourish. You'll never gain the self-confidence that can serve you very well in life. This is the Limitless
1: Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of Rx, and your host. And I believe every athlete and coach must base their mindset in stoicism if they're ever going to achieve their goals. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can.
0: There is no past there's no future. There's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through
1: that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like, as a man, not just as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay. That's part of the deal. It's how I responded. Today on the Limitless Athlete Podcast, you'll be listening to a conversation between stoic philosopher and commentator William B. Irvin and myself. I've been a practicing Stoic for years now. When it's good, it's really, really good. When I fall off track, things become a little bit squirrely. So I wanted to get someone on the show who could teach us about Stoicism, teach you how to apply it to your life, and why it's not this kind of ancient, gone-out-of-fashion and gone-out-of-use philosophy But why it's what I found and what our athletes find, it's an actionable philosophy. It's something you can actually get your teeth into and it's going to affect your life and affect your success. I found William or Bill through Sam Harris's meditation app, Waking Up, and he really provided an interesting insight into meditation and also into stoicism for me. And then I read his book, The Stoic Challenge, and I just had to get him on the show. So why explore stoicism well it's a mental toughness tool it's going to teach you to become mentally tougher it gets you taking action it's not just navel gazing and most most athletes that we work with are lacking an element of that mental toughness true deep mental toughness and this is going to help you develop the ability to frame experiences in a more serving manner also Alongside this element of mental toughness and embracing stoicism, we're going to explore the technique of framing, overcoming setbacks, why anger is going to destroy your gains, adding meaning to suffering, when negative emotions stop being helpful, and why failing is probably the missing ingredient from your success. Alongside this episode, we'll also be releasing The Debrief. This is where we'll not only attempt to boil down what you've learned in this episode, but we'll teach you about how to apply mindset in general. And this is going to be released either on Thursday or Friday. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss this. Now, I bring you the truly wonderful William B. Irvin.
0: Bill, when did you first encounter stoicism? Uh, I first encountered Stoicism in a logic class in college. This would be in the early 1970s, because it turns out the Stoics were the um, the experts in what, what is known as propositional logic, which is the kind of logic that makes computers and your cell phone and all these other wonderful things work. Uh, they didn't invent those things, but they came up with the logic of you know, and, if, or, and so on, which is now commonly used. Um, That was the beginning. And uh, I I was, uh, I had heard that the Stoics did other things as well, but I didn't know what those other things were until uh, the early, you know, in the uh, 2000s, when I was doing research on a book on uh, philosophies of life. And I encountered them again, and I looked a bit deeper, and I realized that they had come up with all of these really wonderful strategies for dealing with with the uh, problems that arise in life. So, uh, so as a, a what a fifty year old, I encountered the Stoics again, and this time they had a real impact on my life. When you
1: learned about Stoicism for the first time, or when you kind of developed it as a reference point, was there anyone who had previously appeared in your life you're thinking oh i've seen this before i've i've seen this um, exemplified by this person
0: uh, not really although i realize now in retrospect that i was what i call a congenital stoic and that is the things the stoics were teaching i kind of had figured out <clears throat> and since then i've encountered uh, other people who seem to fall in that category i get uh, emails from people who say well you know, I've been doing this all my life. you just given fancy names for the stuff uh, that I've been doing. Um, so, uh, so so it's an interesting thing. I was influenced going into college by people who were pushing a philosophy of life. Henry David Thoreau was a, a big influence. And I imagine that if I took philosophy courses, that it would cover that sort of thing and was a little bit dismayed to realize that for them, it was just this technical undertaking where you had these arguments that had been going on for 2000 years, but this feeling that, oh, we're almost there and we're going to figure out how to settle these arguments once and for all. And if you told a a professor, as I did, well, well, why don't we do stuff like Henry David Thoreau did? And I was told that wasn't the proper uh, business of a philosopher, at least not in an American university.
1: So, what do you consider the the proper business of a philosopher?
0: I consider well. <clears throat> here's the interesting thing because I do I write books for a, a broad general audience. So I regard the the uh, books I write as a form of teaching. Uh, so it's not a teaching a classroom of college uh, students. It's the the world at large, and uh, so I do have colleagues who stick to the narrow academic a study of Stoicism. Uh, And I don't know what they think of what I'm doing, you know, but uh, I I know what I think of what they're doing. And I know what the ancient Stoics would think of what they're doing, that the Stoics didn't develop develop Stoicism. So academics could discuss it and write papers about it. Uh, They wrote it to help people live their lives. And so in the books I write, I'm trying to share that. And I think I'm doing Stoicism. The way the Stoics would want it done. Mm, I think that's
1: what drew me to Stoicism originally. You, you have all these, I suppose, <laughs> academic philosophies that are kind of attractive in one way, especially if one of those things that you want to do is prove yourself to other people and appear smart. Yes, and yes. then you have the very applicable, very simple uh, philosophy of stoicism and I, the first person to, to introduce me to i suppose and a lot of other people was tim ferris um mm. and his discussion of how it essentially prevented him from committing suicide um and then uh he was his next ryan holiday's work was was mm. instrumental in this and all of a sudden i had a framework to live my life by and i found that far more useful than anything else that was presented to me
0: Yeah. And uh, it's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, uh, uh, scholars, academics who do philosophy uh, for them, it's just a chance to show off how clever they are Mm. and it doesn't spill over. I have this one uh, talk I've given that if, uh, you know what, if the the, uh, garbage men, if the trash collectors went on strike, we would know about it. We would care very much if the philosophers went on strike we wouldn't know about it. You know, you might pick up the newspaper and say philosophers strike in its 10th year. And we would say, what, what, what is this? Who are these people? What are they striking about? And, you know, it hasn't had any impact on me. So I attempt to do philosophy in a way that um, will reach other people and will affect the way they live their lives. So for me, it's, it's a very personal, uh, kind of thing. It's a, it's a mission. Uh, I, I also developed this way of thinking uh, after, as a result of reading uh, the uh, ancient, uh, the Roman Stoics. And, you know, in particular, if you read somebody like Marcus Aurelius, you come away with this notion of a, of a Stoic social duty. Once you've uh, got this package of, of useful strategies to share them with the world, because the world is um spinning its wheels you know it's on what psychologists call a hedonic treadmill and um and that's unfortunate because there is there is a way off the treadmill uh there is a way to proceed uh there are actually many different paths that have been described as philosophies of life stoicism offers one that has the advantage of uh in in just a matter of days you can learn enough about it that you can Um, you can try the the techniques out on your own and you'll find out, you'll get very quick feedback over whether it's making a difference in your life uh, or not. Uh, And you don't have to shave your head. You don't have to go away into the desert for 40 days or whatever. You can do it in the comfort of your own home and no one needs to be any the wiser, you know? So you have some, some, some buddy of yours saying, I weren't you a stoic last week. What are you now? They don't even need to know. But if you do switch, they might detect a change in your in your attitude, in your the way you're you're working your way through life. They might sort of realize, you know, you're not as angry as you used to be. You're not as anxious. Are, are you on medication? No, no, no. It's much better than that. I'm, I'm a stoic now.
1: And that applicability, that ease of, I suppose, access to it, and the ability to recall it, is one of the reasons why it become such a useful tool for athletes to develop of of all types as well how do you see this as a useful tool for athletes to apply to their training to competition to recovery to the way they live their lives
0: um so there's a few different ways you can approach that um one of that so that when i talk about stoicism the greeks were there first the greeks were there in 300 bc And unfortunately, we have almost none of their writings. We have writings about what they wrote about, but not the actual uh, writings. Uh, Fortunately, the philosophy uh, found its way to Rome, and so when you talk about Stoicism, you're talking typically about Roman Stoicism. Four great Roman Stoics, um, Marcus Aurelius that people have heard of, Seneca, Epictetus. And then the fourth, less known, but wonderful uh, Stoic is uh, Musonius Rufus. Epictetus's great insight. And it doesn't sound like much when you say it and you think, well, this is an insight anybody could have had. Well, yeah, but he took this insight and he ran with it. And the insight is there are things you can control and there are things you can't control. And if you spend your time worrying about the things you can't control you're wasting your time. You should instead focus that energy on things you can control. So in terms of athletic training and competition, you've got that same dichotomy at work. So uh, you can spend your training time obsessing over things you can't control. Like, well, what strategy is the other person going to use? Uh, what if the other person does this or that? And you could spend your time thinking about that. Um, You might have some degree of control over that, but you have an incredible amount of control over how you train, over uh, which days you train, how long you train, the times you train, what you do when you're training. And when the competition approaches, you can't control what strategy they're going to use in their race, but you can control the strategy. You have exquisite control over the strategy you use in your race. So that's where you should focus your attention. Um, So uh, I'm a a rower, more precisely, a sculler. Uh, So I have two oars. I don't paddle, I row. So there's an important difference in my, um, you can do it in in any number. You can do it with one person, uh, two people, four people, eight people. uh, And I like a single because uh, I have no one else to blame. And if I do well, I get all the credit, you know, it's indisputable. But the thing is, when you're out on the water in a race, you've got to be focused. And if you start thinking about what the other rowers are doing, uh, it's probably going to have disastrous consequences. So there's this saying, keep your head in the boat. And that means think about what you're doing. Don't think about what they're doing. They They can't. You can't change what they're doing. What can you do? You can cover the distance in the least amount of time possible. And so that's what you, uh, that's what you set about uh, doing. And, uh, and, and if you win, Hey, great. And if you don't win, well, you did the best you could. What else could you have done? Right. And so you can walk away with your head high saying I gave it my best. Uh, and Uh, So it's a, it's a different approach, you know, that whole notion of success and failure that some athletes have, what, what is success? Well, you took first place. What is failure? Well, you didn't take first place or depending, you know, on how serious you are, you know uh, success might be, I didn't take last place. So for some people uh, uh, that's a big deal, but um, there is another success and it's internal success. And that is the knowledge that you did what you could with what you had, that you left nothing behind, you put it all out. And uh, because that's the part you have control over. So uh you, you know, people who beat themselves up because the other people were better. Well, <laughs> you know, if you did your best, that's just how it went. Maybe you should try a different sport or try different training techniques or try whatever. Uh, so there's this notion of um what really is success what really is failure and sometimes when i uh i i have been a rowing coach and uh have um talked to people into into racing you know people who you know had just learned how to row talk, talk them into racing and they would go out and they would take a last place and then they'd come back and you know with this look on their face well i came in last and i said actually not what do you mean? Well, number one, there were people who didn't even make it to the starting line, right? You beat them. Oh, and there were approximately seven plus billion people who didn't even sign up for the race. And many of them didn't do that because they fear failure and you didn't. So bravo to you, you know, that you had the courage to do that. If you get deep into a sport, you become an extreme outlier in, in the world. Because uh, I know I have friends who um, who don't like to do uh, things that involve uh, you know athletic. Well, if you're if you're doing interval training, it's no fun. Uh, it's very difficult, and um, so uh, from their point of view, you're just a crazy person, right? Uh, But from your point of view, well, actually there are rewards to be reaped, even if you don't take first place. There's uh, self-control, there's uh, you dealing with your inner demons, there's a bunch of other things going on. Yeah, well, competing
1: and being an athlete of any caliber is such a Vulnerable, exposed thing to do because, on one level, you are ranking yourself amongst everyone else who's competing. And, like you said, you're encountering those limits and you're really encountering the the darkest part of you or the the kind of the weakest part of you maybe the pe- the part of you, you refer to it as lazy bill um which yes, lazy I, I really bill. i really enjoy um but you throughout the book you or throughout the stoic challenge you repeatedly refer to this as a, a test of character not ability and when we find that when you focus on the outcome over and over again it's almost like a short term game it's yes it applies to training and maybe competition What about when you stop training, competing, and move on to something else? What about if you get injured and you have to move on to something else? The test of character applies throughout every domain, whereas the test of ability, of physical ability, applies just within that domain. So it's it's a broadly applicable uh, toolkit as well.
0: If you're uh, an athlete and an athlete in training, what you do can and should spill over into the rest of your life. Uh, you're trying to do something that's very difficult to do Uh, for easy to do. You know, everybody takes away first place, uh, you know, uh, so that's um, semi meaningless unless you've just got ego issues, but it should spill over into other areas of your life. Uh, One thing is a kind of courage that you'll take away, you know, of knowing you did something very hard, knowing it was hard and you did it anyway. There are very many people who, once they realize that doing something's going to be hard, they just say, Well, no, I'm not going to do that. It's hard. And that whole notion of the fear of failure, the fear of public humiliation, if you fail, and as we saw in the previous little bit of the conversation here, well, there's different ways to measure a failure. Uh, And you know, if you're if you're like a, a, a single scholar like I am. What is failure? Well, uh, I didn't win gold in the Olympics, right? So uh, that counts as failure. in which case, boy, there's a lot of failure. That's one way of measuring it, but there are other ways of measuring it. Another way in which um, the training you do in uh, in sports spills over into the other aspects of your life. Um so uh there there is this notion and I I spent a few chapters discussing it in um the book the stoic challenge and I talk about uh stoic training. So what are you doing in stoic training? Are you building up your aerobic capacity? Are you doing well, you're actually doing that, but there's a bigger project there and that is to expand your comfort zone. Um so your comfort zone means what? Can you do things that you know are going to make you uncomfortable. Do them anyway. And uh, most people, again, uh, will say, well, what's the point of that? Why be uncomfortable when you can be comfortable? Uh, and you look around and you see them uh, you know, lying on the couch watching a football game or something else, and they're, they're comfortable. The problem is that they have a very narrow comfort zone. So things have to be just about right for them to feel comfortable. Um, If you have spent your uh, mornings doing interval training, if you spent your mornings in the snow doing interval training on a river and you come back in, you know what? Nothing you do that day is going to be like that. And by experiencing that discomfort, you come away with this sense of, uh, you know, I I can handle this stuff life throws at me, whereas somebody who's just always, uh, sheltered, uh, would have would have trouble, uh, handling that, uh, interval training. So one of the things we do our races, uh, are, uh, this is for masters racing. So I, I'm old, so I count as a masters racer. Uh, but for young people, uh, the the typical sprint would be 2000 meters, but for us, they kindly reduce it to a thousand meters. And if you're uh, really, really fast, uh, you can do it in uh, four minutes in a boat. If you're on an erg, one of these rowing machines, um, you can do it in four minutes. But uh, So I've entered uh, uh, regattas, dry land regattas, where we just do these uh, erg machines. And um, I, I tell people about it, and uh, I describe it as the four-minute flu. Because um, before you race, you're feeling perfectly good. You know, you you've warmed up, you're feeling good, and the race starts. And four minutes later, you might as well have a serious, maybe nearly fatal case of the flu because you're panting, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're dizzy, you're sweating. Uh, and then uh, the interesting thing is, give yourself a few minutes to recover, and you'll be back. You know, the, the whole thing about now i see i haven't done sports like like uh football like basketball the kind of team sports so most of my sp- sports are simply aerobic output and um i tried strength sports like wrestling back in high school i was the worst i was absolutely the worst but i seem to have some uh aerobic uh capacity so um so the interesting thing is you train for that and you get better. You get measurably better. And uh, it, it spills over. Uh, a sense of you can walk away competent. You can say, you know, I've experienced challenges, kind of artificial challenges that I brought on by the sorts of things I do. And that competence will will serve you in other areas of your life. When you hit a, a difficult challenge somewhere else, you'll say, well, you know what? I can, I can row a, a, a racing skull. So Mm -hmm. this is not as hard as that. And I could do that. So this is pretty good. I don't recommend that anybody in your listening audience climb Mount Everest. You know, there's like a one in six chance you're going to die and you might lose some toes and everything else. But I'll tell you what, if you did climb Mount Everest and then later on somebody presented you a challenge, you would have this in your back pocket. You'd have the knowledge that you had climbed Mount Everest. And so you could say, you wouldn't have to say this out loud, but you could think this, well, I climbed Mount Everest. So I'm guessing I could meet this other challenge as well. Yeah,
1: the it's, it's a perplexing thing. It's, it's although hardly surprising and incredibly obvious that doing difficult things makes your life easier as a whole, as an average. The the approach that I took for a long time was, well, through some exceptionally difficult military training I did some very difficult things and that created this lens of oh I do difficult things now this is who I am and it worked for a long time and then what eventually happened after five six years is I'd stopped doing as difficult things um, and I needed to reintroduce myself to that hardship so how do you obviously those those big events are very important the competitions or the challenges that you've set out or the events that you've kind of laid out as major objectives. How are you doing this on a daily basis? You mentioned your training. Is there anything else that you're doing
0: to embrace hardship? Um, Well, things that are difficult and challenging to do. So they come in different different levels. Um, Let me also add one thing to the uh, interval training. You know, the things that are really hard. You know how hard they're supposed to be. You know, so in a thousand meter race, you know that 500 meters in, you're going to feel awful, but that's good because you know, that's how it's supposed to feel because you've done it before. 800 meters, you know what it's supposed to feel like. And that's reassuring. So one of my activities, I'm still teaching classes, but one of my, um, I've been a writer now for two plus decades and you, you—if you do it, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. You, 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 sit down. You, you, face an empty screen, and you've got to fill it with words in a, in a very careful way. Um, and I've learned through doing it, it's difficult to do. But then you realize, oh, uh, it's supposed to feel this way. So I'll have a morning where I struggle to put things down. Maybe generate four hundred words of stuff that's worthwhile. And then the next day I'll look at it and I'll throw it away. And if if you haven't had the experience, you'll say, this means I'm not a writer. If you've had the experience, you'll know, no, this is what's supposed to happen. This is part of the process because when I rewrite it today, it's going to be better than what I did yesterday. Um, so that whole notion of when things feel uncomfortable, of knowing Uh, how they're supposed to feel. And then just saying, this is part of uh, the process you mentioned, uh, you know, well, here's another aspect of this. So I started rowing when I was like uh, 52. So I was an athlete in high school, took a long time off through college, did basically nothing in graduate school, started doing uh, distance running and uh, then had kids and then stopped. And then uh, after 10 years of that, decided to get into shape again, Uh, did swimming, did uh, tennis. Uh, But I'll tell you what, you you know, you you talk about earlier, you talked about people who are athletes and then have some kind of injury and have to, to cut back. Well, the aging process is itself a kind of a creeping injury. And I compare the times I get on various things now to the times I was getting, um, you know, twenty years ago, and it's sad. and and you can look up on charts and, and it, it tells you, here's how much slower you're going to be a year from now than you are today. and, uh, and it's, it's, uh, so, so it's something that needs uh, you need to adjust to it. Uh, I've reached a stage now, so I'm going to turn seventy next year, but I've reached a stage where every minute I spend training requires a subsequent minute of napping. And and it isn't. It's not a voluntary thing. It's not like uh, you know. I feel like maybe I'll take a nap now. It's sort of like mandatory, where your body says it's nap time, and if you fight back, it says, "Okay, well your eyes are closing now, so I hope you're not driving a car because it's nap time now." I I just didn't imagine that that was uh, coming. Uh, I have a friend who's a very very good rower, ten years older than I am, and you realize at that end of the age spectrum. If you're still out there on the water doing interval training, I mean I bow down to you because I I know that must be incredibly difficult to do.
1: Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, chances are you'll enjoy our free ebook, How to Stop Substandard Self Critical Plateaus and Unleash Your Potential. It's a step-by-step guide to finding your mojo again and getting back to the athlete you know you can be. It's free, you just have to stick your email address in and download it. To find it, head to mindsetrxd.com ebook. That's mindsetrxd.com ebook. Now, let's get on with the show. There's a piece in the stoic challenge. Actually the, the whole framing of the Stoic Challenge as your as your book and the way it's kind of set up, it really clicked with me. And I think the part of it that clicked in a way that much of the other stoicism that I've read or commentaries on Stoicism hasn't clicked until now. And I think the reason why is it's such a psychological trick to view it as a challenge. It's yes. a really clever, wise way to do it to get Oh, this is a gauntlet that's being thrown thrown down to me. This is um, an obstacle, like in an obstacle race, um, or a kind of something that's standing in my way, and an opportunity to to win and an opportunity to test myself in this moment. And the way that applies especially well is in setbacks and those things that set us back, as as you talk about. Can you describe a little bit about about setbacks and how we can, um, I suppose the two challenges in overcoming them.
0: Yeah. So setbacks are a constant thing in life. And some of them are trivial things. You uh, go to brush your teeth and you realize you're out of uh, toothpaste. That's a setback. Uh, some of them are middle-sized. You go to drive to work or whatever, and your car is out of gas. That's a setback and they're bigger still you get a phone call from your doctor and he says you know those tests you did last week well you need to come in and see me you uh, we've we've got we've got to talk uh that's a bigger setback so there's a whole range of setbacks um one stoic insight and this would be Seneca uh primarily who really thought carefully about this um one stoic insight was that when we have one of these setbacks, what does us the most harm is not the setback itself, but our emotional response to the setback. Uh, So I like to use a a plumbing analogy. So uh, if you uh, have a house and you develop a, a burst pipe in your house and water is flowing out, well, that's a setback. That's a problem. Uh, uh, and it's, it's going to cause you trouble, you know, if it goes long enough and you're on second story, this this ceiling will collapse, you know, and you have flooding, you'll have all of this other stuff. Um, but you know, it isn't the broken pipe. That's the problem that's causing you the trouble. It's the water that's flooding. That's it. If all that happened was that the pipe broke and there were no, there was no flooding. It would be an inconvenience, but the flooding, Same is true of setbacks in life. So if you look at the things that uh, set you back, they tend to be little things and what tends to magnify them, um, maybe at an exponential rate is your response to them. So you're driving your car and somebody cuts you off in traffic, no collision, nothing else. uh, So, you know, no damage done, but it can, uh, if it makes you angry, then you've just what could have been a good day has now taken a turn for the worse and that anger uh can lurk uh within you so uh seneca's insight was <clears throat> what we need to do is develop our ability when life presents us with a setback to bounce back not to take it personally uh but to bounce back in the following sense uh so uh, you play this game. Um, it's the setback game. And you you imagine that it's a game. And um, to win the game, you got to do, do two things. First is you've got to come up with a, a workaround for the setback, some way of dealing with it. And second, you have to keep your cool while doing that. The second uh, thing is is often harder than the first. But oh, by the way, if you do keep your cool it'll actually make it easier for you to come up with a brilliant solution to the setback. So, uh, so this happens, uh, in life, it happens in athletic competitions. So, uh, you're, you're doing something and, uh, an unexpected setback happens. Your oar pops out of the ore lock, you know, there are all sorts of things that can happen. Uh, and then usually, uh, That'll slow you down. But what will really slow you down is if you panic in response, or if you get all angry in, in response, or if you get upset in response, that's what does you, um, most of the, of the harm. So the stoic, uh, challenge when life sets you back, when an athletic competition, when you're set back in that, what you do is you imagine that it's a kind of test, uh, uh, and a test that to pass it, you have to overcome it and you have to keep your cool while you do. Raising the question of who's the tester, who's doing this? And so as a psychological device, I like to imagine that it's these stoic gods whose job it is right, to cap- uh, prevent us from getting fat and complacent. So what they do is um, is in our life, they present us with these challenges and then we have to we have to respond uh, to the, the, the challenges. Why would they do that? Are they evil? No, they're like good coaches. And I I'm, I'm sus- suspect that most of your listeners have encountered coaches and they know some are good and some are bad. A bad coach is a coach who says, oh, you're just wonderful, just the way you are. Why not go sit for a while? You look like you're getting hot, right? That's not a good coach, at least not if you want to compete um, successfully. A good coach is going to use any number of psychological devices to find and exploit every ounce of competitive ability that is in you. And a good coach is going to, uh, is going to push you harder than you imagined you could be pushed. Not too hard but harder than you can imagine. Uh, So I read about uh, one coach who, you know, you usually have these interval drills uh, and, and, you know, in a workout, there'll be a set number. This morning I did uh, an erg workout and there were sex, there were eight intervals. Okay. And so the coach said, "Um, okay, uh, our today's workout is the usual 10. And so, you know, the, the rowers did the 10 and then we're, we're kind of getting ready to row back. And the coach said, actually, today, we're going to do 14. And the rowers all just groaned and said, no way. You were dead. Guess what? They did four more. They found that they had that capacity. They wouldn't have known that if they didn't have a coach that was a demanding coach. Well, the stoic gods are that way. Uh, by the way, if they pick you out for testing, you're a lucky person, because if they thought you were hopeless, they wouldn't even bother with the test. But what they're going to do is they're going to plumb your depths and find the stuff that's there, the courage that's there, the strength that's there, that you don't know is there, but you can find out by uh, by being tested. And once you know it's there, uh, it, it's 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 a wonderful gift for you to have, because then when life presents you with a serious setback you're going to rise to the challenge you're going to show those stoic gods who's in charge here right that they can't uh they can't fool you uh with this uh same way as if you had a good coach you know you you want to sort of rise to the challenge and it's a good thing if you do
1: it's almost religious way to view it in as much as uh, there's a it, it provides meaning to suffering it's it ameliorates your suffering through through meaning and there's a purpose behind this it's not completely nihilistic it's not completely just suffering for suffering's sake it's it's a way to actively improve
0: yeah let me pause you let me pause you there it is a psychological device so i don't actually believe there are stoic gods if you went to mount olympus you couldn't find them and and complain, you know, about your your rowing and what they were doing. It's a psychological device and a highly effective psychological device, though. Uh, And and actually, I find I, I will find myself talking to these imaginary stoic gods, you know, saying, well, that was an interesting challenge, but you can do better than that, don't you think? Uh, and uh, they have not yet spoken back to me. I think if they ever do talk back, then I need to uh, I need to see some kind of uh, a therapist or something. But it is a game; it's a psychological game. Um, and uh, one one other thing is, stoicism itself is not a religion. Uh, it's compatible with any number of religions, but it, it is not itself a religion. So you don't have to abandon whatever god you believe in. Uh, to uh, to worship the Stoic gods ins- instead because they're a psychological mind game that you can play.
1: And you don't have to take on any dogmatic beliefs about it either. It's just accessible no. to, to anyone. You yeah. start off the, the book with a story about being in an airport. And I was reading this chuckling to myself because I failed a very similar Stoic test in the, was it a month or two before reading this book where... I encountered a setback at an airport and I got very frustrated and angry and I got kind of emotional about it. Um, and I view myself as quite a stoic person. Um, so I was watching myself kind of surprised that I was falling into this, this trap. And firstly, I realized looking around, it's a very, oh, actually when I had, a, had an opportunity to sit back, I, I looked around and I thought it's a very rare thing to do, to think stoically. It must be a tiny percentage of the population that think like that. But then I was also thinking how it's almost socially acceptable and socially normalized to have an emotional reaction to these things. It's expected from society. And if you're not doing that, you're the outlier. So it requires almost a kind of courage to step back from that and not join in with the masses of hysteria.
0: Yeah, I mean most people how do they decide what to do in life? But they look around at what other people are doing and say, you know, they must they must have done their homework on this. Yeah. They must have, have have done it and figured out this is the best way to to do it. But um that's not the case. Most people have not given careful thought to these issues, to this notion of setbacks. They have not read the ancient wisdom and said, you know what, I'm on a hedonic treadmill. I'm working really hard to get something. And as soon as I get it, I lose interest in it and I need something else. They've not done that. So it would be like a, a, a school class in which everybody was cheating off of everybody else's homework, but nobody had actually done the homework. So be an outlier. By all means, be an outlier. Think for yourself. Think it through. And then here's the the most, the biggest incentive. Look at these people. Are they happy? Are they well-adjusted, happy, satisfied individuals who are appreciative of the life they're living? And if they aren't and you follow their advice, you're going to end up like they are. So there is a, another path, fortunately, that they can take.
1: Mm. The other side, as as well as following the masses, is, the, is following emotion too and having every decision guided by emotion. And I think that the separation between... An objective experience and your subjective experience is a very important thing to do obviously emotions play a role though they are we evolved to encounter emotion and it's a kind of it must have been there for a reason if it didn't provide a a benefit to us why would we experience emotion through evolution how much do you know how to listen to your emotion in a in Let's say a setback.
0: So, uh, Stoics uh, were not unemotional. They they were uh, opposed to negative emotions like anger, like envy, uh, like grief, uh, like regret. The negative emotions, what makes them negative? They feel bad, right? Mm -hmm. So, they were basically saying, you know what? There are these emotions that feel bad. Let's come up with a strategy to avoid those uh, to the extent possible. They were all. Uh, they're very much in favor of positive emotions of feelings of delight uh feelings of appreciation feelings of joy uh and so they said and besides avoiding the negative emotions let's see if there's anything we can do to increase the number of positive emotions we experience uh the stoics also said there are times when uh because because of the way you're wired by by evolution uh, there will be negative emotions that you you uh, you just can't help uh, you know avoiding. If you hear suddenly about the death of of someone, for you to experience uh, uh, regret, uh, that's natural. So uh, Seneca said that that means you're human. Good for you. You're a human. But then he counseled, okay, but but keep it within bounds. So in one of his letters, he gives advice to a woman who uh, three years after the death of of her child was still in a state of mourning. And he said, uh, okay, think of it this way. Your child, would your child want you to still be in mourning three years after your death? And if he wouldn't want that, you're not helping him by being that way. So this kind of rational um, approach to it. Another interesting bit of advice Seneca offers is, He said, anger is a really bad, he wrote a long, one of his longer essays is on anger and just the harm it causes people. Um, And he said, really interesting strategy, but this tells you what kind of psychologists there were. He said, when you're dealing with a human being who is truly wooden headed and they screw something up, um, it's okay to look angry. You shouldn't actually allow yourself to be angry. But to act as if you are angry, because that'll get through to them, uh, which sounds manipulative. But uh, you know, sometimes life—that's the kindest way to go—is through manipulation. Um, so they weren't unemotional, but they favored the positive emotions, and uh, uh, they were in, in their time were known as a cheerful bunch of people, which you wouldn't expect. You know, normally you think the Stoics are going to be grim, but they. They, the people who knew them, regarded them as cheerful. So this neg, so negative emotions
1: have utility until a point. They are good. They serve a purpose to, I don't know, to to provide meaning or to to show you a direction to head in, something like that. To show you what's good and show you what's bad, essentially. But then once they've gone, they've
0: you move on. Um, Another way to put it is, we evolved on the savannas of Africa, a radically different environment than we're in now. So we evolved to get hungry on a routine basis. Well, in, in which food was uh, always short, you know, I guess there would have been times of abundance, but the lesson was if food's there, eat it because you don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. Um, and we kept that wiring and now today (laughs) food is abundant. So it's not a starvation problem anymore, at least not in, uh, you know the first world uh, uh, economies. Uh, it's obesity that's the problem. So there we're we're wired to experience emotions in a way that used to help our ancestors survive and reproduce, mm. and we're in a radically different environment. Uh, you see this coming through with uh, social media, uh, an interesting thing. So we evolved to care very much about to number one to to be part of a tribe. And number two, to care very much about our status within that tribe. Because if you were a loner on the savannas of Africa, you were dead before very long. Uh, but unfortunately, now you have people who are obsessed with their status on you know, the social media. And, uh, and the, the problem is that they're seeking the approval of people they don't even know. And it could be people who have radically different values than they do and you're letting them decide what you do with your life and and that is uh that's a really dangerous thing to do.
1: Okay. So we've got to remember that we are in a, a different environment than the one that we devo- uh, evolved for.
0: Yes, a radically different environment. I mean just think of think of the food we have, the the health we have, a comfortable environment uh uh, and, uh, so, so if we had it to do over again, who knows 200,000 years from now, but of course, uh, maybe we'll be, we'll be ready. But if you imagine how technology will have changed by then, no, we, we still will be behind the curve.
1: And I suppose the same applies for in a physical event in an athletic event. It's your, that's very different from the, athletic event that you were primed for, which was escaping danger or chasing something down over days and days and days. Um, like sculling is, is a very different experience to that. And therefore you're going to have slightly non-serving emotional responses within that.
0: Yeah. Uh, the whole notion of, of fight and flight anger, you can actually make anger work for you. So the Stoics, uh, for instance, uh, if you're dealt with a setback, then you can ex- you direct your anger sort of toward the stoic gods, you know, like, I'm going to show you. Um, but if you get angry, I mean, there would be, I'm trying to even imagine, you know, martial arts. Uh, and I, I don't know it well enough to know whether getting angry is a plus or a minus there. Uh, it could be a minus. I mean, something like uh, jujitsu, where it's a very rational, you know, you're, you're problem solving, you're thinking your way through. If you get angry, anger inhibits in a major way your problem solving ability. Boxing, I don't know boxing uh, well well enough, but um, yeah, anger is bad. And if you look at all of the human beings whose lives have been ended as a result of anger, all the all the stupid wars started because of anger. Uh, but it served its place uh, because if you were uh, uh, in a tribe and uh, somebody uh, 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 disrespected you, And you let them get away with it. Ooh, you lost. You lost uh, status, meaning a less chance of mating. Meaning you're going to be eating less. You're going to be eating later and and probably, probably less. So for you to fight back, to be angry, uh, was effective. It just now is counterproductive.
1: It's interesting you brought up the example of jiu jitsu. I did jiu jitsu for two and a half years and i got all right at I, it I, I got my blue belt i was doing kind of okay I, oh I, really I was, i'm impressed I was, so I was, I was doing a little bit here and there um but that mistake of getting angry was always like it was a trap that you could fall into very easily because someone yeah. gets a couple of points on you and then you kind of you go for an aggressive movement you extend your arm suddenly someone's trying to snap your arm in half and it's like oh okay, yeah that all came from anger. And when even when you watch, for example, UFC or mixed martial arts, uh-huh. you see the pre pre-match press conferences or pre-fight press conferences, and you can tell it's a show. The anger yeah. is a show. And you get it, you get in the octagon, and then it's a it's the anger's not there. It's calm, it's focused, it's present on what do I have to do right now and relying yep.
0: on the training. No, there's all this psychological stuff. Uh, I remember uh, uh, being at, at a regatta before a race, and this other competitor. Uh, you know, I was t- talking to him, and he said, "Oh man, and he th- really thought he wasn't going to do well that day because uh, he had had flu the week before, and he was feeling so weak now." You know, and uh, he he rode very well. <laughs> so you know, you 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 try to get on, under people's skins, you try to get inside their head, but that's why you got to keep in mind. Uh, you can control you, and that's what you should focus on. Um, so, if I'm um, if I'm going to give a, a, a talk before a large audience, uh, for instance, it's it's interesting. I used to I used to uh, be anxious. Now I would describe it as focused, in the sense that uh, I got my work cut out for me. I got a game plan. I've done what I can do to prepare for this, and uh, that's what I got, and that's what I'm gonna. Going to deliver, uh, and in sports too, it's the same thing. I know I am at my most nervous when I'm pushing off from the dock to row to the starting line, and once I get out on the water and once I row, it's like the butterflies escape. They 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 float off into space. I think it's very important that the butterflies were there, and I think it's very important that the butterflies subsequently leave me because then I can focus on what I've got to do. Well, I suppose it's
1: embracing reality. Like yeah. there is, there's, there's no reality that exists without those butterflies. Yeah, and you might as well deal with that and and be there with it rather than rather than wishing they weren't there. Yeah, there's. I think the challenge with Any kind of change the way you're thinking is this progression through, we call it the four C's of of moving through the kind of adaptation, which is um, unconscious incompetence. You don't know what you're doing wrong, but you're doing it wrong to conscious incompetence. It's like, okay, now I can observe myself doing wrong to conscious competence where I'm really having to work hard and really having to focus on making the right decisions in every moment and every kind of option is different, and this is usually where people fall off because it actually increases in resistance as you get through that you think you've you think you're through it and you're not and then finally into um unconscious competence how do you keep the, i suppose the stoic challenge in at top of mind when you're going throughout life
0: Ah. Uh, Number one, I backslide routinely. Uh, so this morning, the, the rowing workout I did was uh, had a coach, very, very good coach. And, uh, uh, you know, he partway into it uh, during our rest interval, he said, you know, here's what you need to do differently. Uh, and he was right. And so the next uh, interval we did, I did that right. And then something else stopped working. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, there's just so much to keep track of. And the thing you're focusing your attention on is going to work, and then the other stuff falls away. It's practice of stoicism, same thing. So I do have moments when I find myself uh, getting angry, uh, and the interesting thing is, when you get far enough into the uh, into the practice of stoicism, then it's possible to get angry on two different levels. Number one, you're just angry in the normal sense. Number two, you're angry that you're angry, angry, you know, you know, I shouldn't be this way. And yet I am this way. And so you're upset about being upset. And then at that point, you throw your hands up and say, okay, let's just not be angry. Let's just, um, let's just move on uh, from there. Uh, That whole notion of watching yourself do something. So we were talking um, before about Lazy Bill. Uh, one of the interesting things. Uh, so to do um, a sport is is to do self therapy because you get to do something. So when you're uh, when you're in the middle of a race and your your dog tired, then you bring out all of these inner voices that normally hide out in a back bedroom. But when you're trying to do something very difficult and your brain is oxygen starved and you've got a bunch of things going on. They come creeping out, and they—they're uh, the weakest part of you. But you've got them before you. You've got a front row seat to watch them at work, and they're gonna—they're gonna just make all sorts of suggestions. You know, you'd feel better if you just slowed down. Oh, you know what would feel really good is to quit. Just quit rowing at this point, and uh, th- then it's a chance because then you do uh, uh, full contact of uh, uh, martial arts with these forces. You punch them back into uh, their hiding holes, and you experience a triumph in the process of doing that. And I know from experience that you let them have their way with you once, and they are going to be riding high for weeks after that. Uh, so you you just can't quit. And yet, being a human, sometimes sometimes that happens. Uh, so when thrown, you must resaddle as, as quickly as you can. That's lovely. Um, there's, there's something
1: about personifying those forces that come against you and, and seeing them as many, almost many um, uh, personalities that come out. It's like, okay, this is a small individual and, and kind of doing battle with them that is so empowering. With it. yeah. It's like this is the way I'm focusing on it. Like I'm attacking this and, and doing battle with this. That's such a useful way to think.
0: Yeah, I call I call mine, you mentioned this before, I call mine Lazy Bill. Mm. Uh and again, he hangs out in a back bedroom. I think he plays video games or something like that. And then uh, occasionally when I'm trying to do something difficult, he will come out and make suggestions about uh I, I don't have to, I don't have to work this hard. Uh I'm sure. That everybody has their own personal equivalent of a lazy bill lurking in them. It's just that in some cases, a lazy bill has taken control of the place. Lazy bill has uh, just is now in charge. So they don't think in terms of, I wonder what my lazy bill would say if it came out, because that's all they got is they got lazy bill. Uh, and, and, and that's a shame they have, uh, only one life to live and to live it with lazy bill in charge. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's bad news. So, um, uh, try, I mean, here's just a challenge for your listeners. Uh, think about something that would be difficult for you to do and do it. How come? Because it's going to be difficult for you to do. And in the process of doing that, you're going to learn a lot about yourself if you're paying attention. Uh, But what if you fail? Oh, that's wonderful because then you will see that it's possible to fail and bounce back from failing. And oh, by the way, here's some advice for you. I can tell you a surefire way never ever to fail again in life. And that is don't ever do something difficult. Just get on that couch, relax. Have some chips, right? Uh, Watch some television, and you will never have to experience failure. And you'll also never grow as a human being. You'll never flourish. You'll never gain the self confidence that can serve you very well in life. Um, So, the other thing is if you look at uh, people who are successful uh, and you you track their life uh, experience, you'll find that uh, most of them failed multiple times. It's just that when they fail, they don't sort of say, well, I failed, so I got to quit. They say, I failed. What can I learn from that failure? What can I change to go on to make new, better failures? Um, And of course, uh, almost everybody, if you can walk, if you can walk, you have shown your ability to withstand failure. I was reading these numbers uh, the other day on a part of a research project, so I'm not going to get them exactly right, but it's something like this. The average one-year-old falls down. <laughs> it's like eighty times a day, and what does he do? He gets back up, and tries it again. Uh, that's a wonderful approach to life. I fell. Well, I should try again. Whereas by the time you're an adult, you know the fear of even falling once is uh, it just locks your life. You you can't develop beyond that.
1: Someone calculated how many times you have to fall in order to win a gold medal at ice skating in the yeah. uh, it's a million plus.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. I believe that. I believe yeah, yeah. that. But I then think of-, think of how many people would do it fall once and say, uh, that's it. And then they, they can, uh, they can never go on. Even if you don't have your goal, uh, have it as your goal to win the Olympics or to win, to, to be at a national level of competition. Um, to go out and attempt to do, to learn a sport and attempt to do a sport can be a really important life lesson. So even if this, you're going to learn about the sport and that that's interesting. Uh, so I, in, in the um, uh, pandemic, my wife and I got bicycles and started doing lots of cycling. And then it's just amazing the things we see that we wouldn't have seen before, you know, we'll be passing a car and we'll say, oh, look at that trailer hitch, you know, things like that, but it spills over into the rest, uh, into the rest of your life, uh, even doing it at a low grade way, you'll sort of discover things about sports, discover things about the world, discover things about people and the way people relate and most significantly discover things about yourself. Yeah.
1: That's a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much for your time. Um, There's one piece of language I thought is one of the best ways to frame things that was was from the Stoic Challenge that's been playing around my mind since I read it, which is my goal is to acquire metal, not medals. And that Uh, is such a a useful phrase for me in whether it's in work, whether it's in um, difficult conversations with people that I love, difficult conversations, people that I don't love, um, whether it's training, everything. So that's been incredibly beneficial for me. So uh, thank you for that.
0: Oh, thank the Stoics. I'm just, I'm just the
1: messenger. (laughs) Um, Absolutely will do them. I'll I'll thank those Stoic gods. Um, Thank you very much for your time, Bill. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Um, where can people find out a bit more about your books, um, about yourself, like catch up with, um, where, yeah, where would you recommend people start with your work? Uh,
0: uh, uh, so I'm not big on social media, but you can go to, uh, William B that's B as in boy Irvin, William B. Irvin.com. And there's more there. There's stuff to read. There's stuff to listen to more there than any sensible human needs of William B. Irvin.
1: I'm Tom Foxley. Thank you for listening to the Limitless Athlete Podcast. Following this episode, we're going to be releasing The Debrief, a summary of the wisdom within this conversation and the practical steps to apply it in order to enhance your own mindset. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast, so you can start growing the mindset of a Limitless Athlete. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review and some kind words are very, very useful and much appreciated. For further mindset training resources and tools, Head to mindsetrx.com, that's mindsetrxd.com, or find us on Instagram by searching for mindsetrx. Again, that's mindsetrxd. Next week, we're gonna be taking a deep dive into how your physical body, which is your nervous system, your nutrition, your training, and everything that goes into that, affects your mental health. It is a deep one, so prepare yourselves.